So we are here today at Coventry City Council House. I'm really excited for the interview we've got coming up today. Uh, I think I've said before that I want to intersperse some of the theme episodes with interviews with notable figures in the city. Uh, and I think we've got one of the greatest figures we've got in Coventry that are around now. So I'm really pleased that we've got David Moorcroft here with us today, who's going to tell us about his history in the city, his running career and what he's been up to now. David, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, Aaron. I'm uh, looking forward to the next half an hour. It should be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, it's almost like a mini, this is your life, I kind of see this is. We're not going to have kind of people coming through the door giving you red box, but I think the idea will be is we'll kind of talk about kind of your history in the city. So let's start with that then. So obviously you were born in Coventry? Born in Coventry in 1953 on the Kempis Highway. Um, uh, um, my dad worked in at Massey Ferguson's. Um, my mum was bringing up children, but she... Uh, ended up working for the city council in the tra- in transport. Um, yeah, and I think I was born at, uh, I know every generation say that, but it was post-war Coventry, so we'd got rid of the threat of war, but Coventry was was emerging as a as a powerhouse in, in the motor industry and related industry. So I, I kind of grew up in a, a wonderful era. Um, and I, I guess the other kind of nice coincidence was the invention, creation of comprehensive schools, so I went, uh, uh, I went to Woodlands Comprehensive School. Fantastic facilities, great for sport, and that was me sorted. So I think most people are going to know you for your sporting career. Tell me how that began. What were the first steps, no pun intended, for your kind of running career? Well, I went, I went to Henry VIII Junior School, but failed my 11 plus. But I remember doing a bit of running at junior school, thinking I enjoy this. Um, but it was when I was at Woodlands, really, that uh, I was desperate to make a school team. Uh, I, was, I didn't make the school football team. I wasn't big and strong enough, I think, to make the rugby team. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, as, they, as often happened, we were sent out on a, a wet, cold um, morning for a cross-country run. And, uh, and I won it and enjoyed it. And I thought, this is, I love this. Got in the school team, um, ran about the same time. This is 1965, I guess, something like that. Um, my dad... 64. My dad took me to Complicate Ivor Harriers, which was based at the Butts in Earlsdon, and hadn't got a clue about the club or anything to do with, with the background of the club. Um, but I joined Complicate Ivor Harriers when I was 11, and that was me hooked on, um, on running. I loved it. I loved it from day one. And what's the, what's the transition then from kind of that to professional running? Um, what's the journey like as a teenager? I guess your body's developing and changing. Um, what did it look like at that time? I think I was kind of a slow developer. Uh, uh, the, so I, I ran for the club, ran cross country. The track running wasn't that important to me. It was cross country and road running. Uh, the, the club had a, had a fabulous history, one of the strongest Harrier clubs in the world. Basil Heatley got the Olympic silver medal in Tokyo when I joined the club. Brian Kilby was fourth. There was Bill Adcox, Dick Taylor, a woman called Sheila Taylor, Sheila Carey, who was fourth in one Olympics, fifth in the other. I ended up training with her, um, Colin Kirk and many others. It was, uh, But not just those, those that, that at the sharp end, but other people within the club were trained like beasts to be the best they could be and the club was ruled the the, the roost in terms of um, cross country and road running in this country and I was just part of that it was contagious uh, at, the, at the club the, the, the guy a guy called Reg Payne then a guy called Mick Crossfield made, made it so much fun for us um, but we got that kind of notion of being the best you could be not having a clue where that would take you but that was the culture that existed and it was very much amateur you know most of the of the runners all of the runners um, had full-time jobs and many of them you know worked in the car industry or Bill Adcox was a gas fitter and, and various other 
you know, real grafting jobs, but they still trained incredibly hard. So I was brought up in, a, in an environment of, of lots of fun, but lots of real, real hard work. Um, and then part of the transition was that um, Mick Crossfield had figured he'd taken as, me as far as I could go. But also a guy called John Anderson was coaching Sheila Carey. And through them, I got in contact with my, who, the guy who became my coach, John Anderson, when I was 16. And John took me through my career. And he's a genius, absolute genius. But he's, he's most famous for being the referee in Gladiators. Okay. So he's, you know, three, yes. two, one. And he was 90 uh, at the weekend. Um, but he, he, was, he came from a PE background, a, a teacher. But he was, a, he was really innovative, incredibly inspiring, in, you know, helped me believe in myself at a time when I, I lacked belief, um, but was really analytical. He, you know, he, he studied the science. So I was, I was, there's a whole series of coincidences that, that, um, that were just perfect for me. But a major part of that coincidence was growing up in a city that was, that was buoyant. Everybody got a job. When you went to you know, school at, the end, at 16, you, if you didn't want to carry on in higher or further education, you knew you could get a job in Coventry. And, uh, and it was just a wonderful environment to grow up in. So you talk about the hard work that was obviously involved. Um, were you built for running? Was it natural for you or was it a lot of hard work? Well, I imagine it was a lot of hard work, but was, which was the biggest part that played in, you, in kind of you becoming a runner? I think I was born to run. My, my physique is, you know, was <laughs> not quite so slim now, but I was born to run. I was a member of Quantum Swimming Club for a while, but I never quite enjoyed swimming as much. Um, I, I, obviously, it was wonderful days for, for Cov City with Jimmy Hill and Coventry Rugby Club was number one in the country. But although I loved watching those sports, I knew that my, the sport that, that suited me most was running. Um, but not just that, it's the one that I enjoyed most. So, you know, whereas other people were desperate to get out of running at cross country at school and, you know, hated it, I just loved it. And uh, it, that didn't, that's not to say it doesn't drive you mad on occasions, um, but, but the ups and downs were just part of that whole experience. So, um, and, you know, I figured obviously as well, physically being um, suited to running, mentally I was as well, because I, I kind of like the pain. <laughs> and you know I like the I like the training uh, I like the camaraderie and I like the challenge of a long distance race yeah that's the thing for me so to, so I played football for many years um, and obviously when you start playing football you then need to find other things and I've tried running uh, myself and I think the mental side is the hardest part is I, I get myself incredibly bored like we'll obviously go into your, your career in further but what's it like running long distance so the further you get on how do you battle that mentally I guess there's kind of an element of roads tinted glasses now, but and it, and it was tough. I mean, I just churned and ran around the Memorial Park because we lived by there, and I, I you know, I, I, that just became my second home, the Memorial Park. Um, I, I, I was at Woodland School, and there was a guy called Paul Eels, and we were born within a day of each other, um, and we looked the same. We both had a crew cut. We're both roughly the same height and both roughly the same ability. So, and we were mates, and so he and I would batter each other in training and in racing. And we kind of grew up together. And Paul lives in Surrey now. But um, the, the, I don't. I think you know, resilience is a, a word that's used a lot. Um, but you, you need to have physical resilience, you know, which is your body can take that amount of training. But you need to have kind of mental and emotional resilience. And my resilience came from enjoying it. Um, that's not to say every moment wasn't great, and there were plenty of massively you know, bad performances, down performances, but something my coach talked about was was that whole notion of learning and that you know you learn more often when things don't go well than you do when they do go well and it's absolutely true and he had a wonderful ability if I was 
ever lacking in resilience after a race or you know, it had gone badly. He had a, John Anderson had a wonderful ability to pick you up. And he, he's, he's known as a kind of fiery Scot, and he, is, you know, he, he has that reputation deservedly. But he was the best person to be with after a bad race. And, uh, and those sort of things are really important. That's why I, I, you know, I think any of us that, that, that do well in life or whatever, um, it, you have to trace it back to a whole series of people and incidents that just go right for you. And for me, Coventry was very much part of that. The people in Coventry, the runners, the club, John Anderson. I went to Tar Hill College. That's where I met my wife, Linda. And there was a, a, a lecturer there called Joe DeLonge, who um, was an amazing woman, is an amazing woman. Um, and she taught economics, social economics, commerce. But more than ever, she just taught belief. She taught, you know, how, you, you know, believe in yourself, go for it, trust in your ability, work hard, all those sort of things that sound a bit glib, but they're dead right. So we move then towards then the Olympic Games in 76. Um, what's the preparation like for your first Olympic Games? Um, well, the, the scary thing about trying to get to the Olympic Games is the possibility of not getting to the Olympic Games um, because you, you, you had to run a trial and, and finish in the top three in the trial and have the qualifying standard. In fact, you had to finish in the top two to be guaranteed. And I wasn't, I, I wasn't sort of... Um, I don't think necessarily I was expected to make the team. Pro- probably, you know, maybe a possibility. Um, but the, the trial race, uh, obviously loads of training, loads of preparation. And at the time I was a student um, and I was never a full-time athlete. So I, I, it, although um, athletics became professional towards the end of my career, um, I, always either, I was either a student or I worked. But I always managed to fit my running in around it. But the trials were on the same day as the Coventry Carnival. And it was at the Crystal Palace, um, I, and I, it was um, a load of pressure. Uh, and Steve Ovette won the race. I came second, um, but I knew then that I was going to go to the Olympic Games. So that evening, and I, I, I maybe I think it, I'm pretty sure it was the evening or the or the Sunday, um, came back to Coventry and went to to the carnival and was walking around the fair. People had watched it on telly in the afternoon. And was just able to, you know, to enjoy an evening, knowing that I was going to become an Olympian, and um, went off to Montreal, and it was fantastic. So, what was the gap then between the kind of qualifying and the actual games itself? Uh, I guess there was a couple of months between the two. We didn't go off to, we didn't have organised warm weather training. You just did whatever you did, and then jumped on the plane. But there was a guy called Bill Latworth and his family in Coventry, and he was actually the general secretary of the Transport and General Workers Union. But he was, um, uh, his son ran. And, you know, we ran together. But Bill, and I still don't know how it happened, but Bill had contacts in America, in Maryland, and he, he kind of figured that the, the weather in Maryland, the heat and humidity, was roughly the same as Montreal. So we went and stopped, Linda and I went and stopped with the Myers family, a great guy called Bob Myers, who ultimately became in, involved in the Triumph Meriden um, uh, experiment. And um, we, we went, went there for a few weeks doing this thing called warm weather training. Um, and then went off to the Olympic Games in Montreal. Um, I was the slowest person in my heat, but I made it through to the semi-final. I was obviously the slowest person in the semi-final, but I made it through to the final. And, uh, one, and I beat Steve Ovette in the semi, which was great. Um, but one of my memories is a real hero of mine, a guy called John Walker from New Zealand, who ultimately won the final. He spiked me accidentally in the semi-final, but I was so proud of this scar, and I've still got the scar that John gave me. Do you remember it clearly? Can you remember, obviously, I think there was three Olympic Games that you ran in. Do you remember it all clearly or does it kind of fade with kind of time passing? No, I think you remember it clearly and you remember, you, you, you remember it for more than just the performance. I, the, um, 
the Montreal for me was great. I, I, when I lined up in the final, um, I, I shared it with a guy called Frank Clement, who ultimately came fifth in the final, Brit. And I, I could barely sleep the night before because I was so excited, not nervous. And on reflection, that was kind of weird because when I lined up for the final, I was on the inside lane and they, you know, they said, you know, the final of the men's Olympic 1500 metres. And I just thought I'd got the best seat in the house. So on reflection, on reflection, um, it, you, it was that whole notion of, of not taking an opportunity when it was there. My, my big challenge was to get to the final. Having got to the final, I forgot mm. that you actually got to concentrate for the final. I'm slightly exaggerating, but, you know, I learned a lot and I, I loved that experience and it was a great experience and I, you know, I ran well. But I learned a lot then about about you know you, you only get a few moments in your life when you've really got an opportunity and you've got to you've got to you've got to really get your head around it. And I'm not sure I totally got my head around that challenge, but but I loved every minute of it. So did you use the experience of the Olympics and kind of what you learned then to kind of power you on for the Commonwealth Games? It came two years later, and obviously with you winning gold. Yeah, very much so. I, in 1978, it was the Commonwealth Games, and it was the exact opposite of that. The the um, I, I I was amongst the favourites. Um, I shared a room with Brendan Foster, which was fantastic because um, he just kept my, my feet on the ground. And, you know, he made sure I didn't train too hard because there's a temptation when you're in the village to, to train too hard. We trained together. We talked. I, his, his charisma and his kind of energy and his determination and his ruthlessness kind of rubbed off on me in that, that week or two. And we talked, you know, we talked massively about what was needed, what he needed to do to win the 10,000, and he did, and what I needed to do to get a medal in the 1500 because I was up against Philbert Bailly, the world record holder. Um, and, but, uh, but, you know, as it happened, um, the, the, I got through to the final really well. And in the final, I just remember th- thinking, this is an opportunity you can't let go. You, you have to get a medal. And not long before I went, Linda was there and I'm, I saw her outside of the stadium. And I don't get too emotional, but I, I remember saying to Linda a couple of hours before the final, um, I think I can win this. And, and I choked. And I then, then I had two hours to get my head round, not just getting a medal, but what, have I got, what, what do I need to do to win it? And, and I went into that race tracking Philbert by the whole way and, and, and managed to beat him. He came second. Slightly helped by the fact he'd just recovered from malaria. <laughs> but but Philbert, by, Philbert by at his best would have beaten me that day. Um, but, 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 you know, I, I got my head around it and, and ran really well and, and won the gold. Yeah, do you know, it's really interesting because when with sports people you often see the headlines but what I think is really coming through here are the stories that are behind it I'm watching the Beatles documentary at the moment um, and it's uh, obviously a moment of time but it's all of those small conversations that you ha- that people are having with each other that the headlines don't portray and I guess that's what you're kind of referring to there the camaraderie the teamwork the kind of the sportsmanship and um, is that something you I guess you remember really fondly it is and you know the, the whole, that whole generation you know Sir Brendan Foster now is a friend and you know you I keep in contact with lots of the lots of the athletes from those days from this country and abroad and John Walker the New Zealanders now got Parkinson's we had a bit of a reunion in Italy a few years ago and there were a whole group of us from around the world who got together and we were it was just wonderful memories but you're right I mean the, the, it, you see a performance uh, and I you know, was lucky enough to be in Tokyo this year and saw some unbelievable performances on the track. 
but I don't know the stories behind them. But all of those stories will be of adversity, of endeavour, of resilience, of opportunity, of support. And every little ingredient, and this, it comes back to Coventry, and I can honestly say that's why I'm kind of so proud to be from this city because every element of pretty much every experience I've ever had in this city, from school to think failing my exams to the support I got at the club to the people at the club who were just inspirational to my family friends all those little bits add up to you're lining up for a performance and giving it your best and you know if, if you win it's fantastic but you know, my worst experience was coming last in the Olympic Games in 1984 when I was the world record holder and you know there's a whole succession of stories always got excuses but you know I, I ultimately uh, after that race I'd, I'd got a groin problem I ended up having to go to Germany for an operation but as I ran the final um, it was the worst athletic experience of my life completely devastating coming last by a long way almost getting lapped but my goodness did I learn a lot from that and you know as I crossed the line I had it all out of proportion I, I equated it to a disaster and it wasn't it was just a race I learned so much from that and, and I'd, if I could have my time again I'd love to have won an Olympic gold but, but the learning experience from, from it and months after I, the, the, the Olympic final I went to Germany for an operation the, the, the rehab would, took a long long time and I remember going at the Memorial Park on a wet cold Tuesday morning for my first little run on my own after the operation and I must have run a couple hundred yards something like that and it was just brilliant I just it just rekindled my love of athletics and my connection with with that park and my connection with the thing I love which is running and that's the amazing thing to see is that Coventry runs through your story I think we to be fair I don't think there's too many people that that come from the city and then almost disown the city that Coventry is something that's ran throughout your journey Coventry has and you know we've had our ups and downs and you know the project I'm heavily involved in now which is now CV Life um, started off at Sydney Stringer School in the time of you know real high unemployment and particularly high youth unemployment but the thing that turned it was there was a thing called the manpower services commission and they allowed us to to create a project to try and um, explore opportunities in sport for young people who were unemployed and from that you know loads of people in coventry still work in coventry came through that project you know youth opportunity program yts so kind of when things go bad you can turn it into good um, so Coventry's had its challenges, but that, that pride I've got in the city is, 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 is immense. But it's also for little weird things, people, you know, the, the old unsung hero people, the people who no one's ever heard of, no one will ever hear of. But they do amazing things for communities in this city. And, you know, some of the, the most impressive people in this city are people who do a lot for a few people, but my goodness, it's incredible to watch and, and massively effective. And I guess that your story, there are lots of similarities with Coventry as a city, is in resilience and building themselves up when things haven't gone as well as they have. What, what would you say then is, is your kind of biggest highlight? Is it the world record or is it the Commonwealth gold? I think the world record is the biggest highlight, um, obviously, uh, and and that was weird because um, I didn't expect it. It was um, it was nearly forty years ago in Oslo, and I went across hoping to run well, um, potentially hoping to beat Brendan Foster's British record, but completely unaware that I was going to run the race of my life. And um, and I, and I ran the race of my life. It, it was really easy, relatively easy. Um, I, I I led after two laps because because I felt the pace was slow. Uh, and just the Oslo crowd just carried me around the Bislett Stadium. And it, it, it was, as I came up to the, the bell, 
I could see, I had no idea about the world record, but I see the clock said 12 minutes and I knew then I had 60 seconds, I had the last lap to come to terms with the fact my life was going to change. And, uh, but, but the, the kind of weird story around that was that um, it wasn't live on, on BBC um, because it was the same time as the Football World Cup, but my dad was at the, 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 at the, at the butts uh, timing for the apprentice sports and um, uh, during the apprentice sport, he was going to go home and watch his son. He had no idea how he was going to do. Um, um, and the announcer at the apprentice sport said, oh, we've just got to break in. We've got some, you know, some terrific news. We've just heard that Coventry's uh, own Dave Moorcroft has tonight broken the world 5,000-metre record in Oslo. My dad's standing in the, at the Butt Stadium having to come to terms with, with that sort of news. And, and it was... You know, it was lovely because kind of Coventry embraced that, and and it was, you know, four or five years later, Cov won the FA Cup final, and you know it'd been tough times in Coventry because of the industrial demise. So when sport goes well, it does lift the city. That's why, you know, the football club, it's and rugby and all the sports, but probably football more than anything, it just lifts the city when when city are doing well, and it's and it's more than it's more than a business. Um, and, and it's more than a sport because it get it gets through to people in a different way, and it and it triggers off a sense of pride. And you know, Coventry now is a really diverse city. People from all parts of the world, all parts of the UK. You know, both universities are flying at the moment, and and it's a different city to the one I grew up with, but n- but no less sense of pride and no no less sense of of purpose and determination and loads of things to be really chuffed about. Mm. So let's so 1982 then was the 5000 meter record. Um so I'm oh, sorry how long did that stand for that 5000 meter record? It stood as a as a world record for 3 years yeah. uh, and it stood as a British record for till Mo Farah broke it in to probably just less than 30 years. I can't I've lost track now. But Mo Farah broke it. I was the last non-African athlete to to hold the world 5000 meter record. But now you know the times they run now are ridiculously fast. Um but yes it lasted 3 years as a world record. So eight, so that was eighty two, and then obviously the same year was that your second gold, Commonwealth gold. Yeah, second gold Commonwealth Games in 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 um, Brisbane, which went really well, and I was I was the favourite and ran well and won it. Uh, less well at the European Championships when I I I, 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 I was I, tactically all over the place and came third, um, uh, and um, uh, and then it was kind of the build up to nineteen eighty four, which I told you about loads of injuries it was pretty obvious I was getting toward my body was my body had had enough even though my mind hadn't um and at that time also we began the project that, that is now CV Life you know we, we were working towards trying to get our own facility which ultimately became Centre 87 and uh, uh and starting a young family and you know Paul and Lucy arrived and life changed what toll does professional running take on the body? Do you still feel the effects of it now? Kind of, did you have lots of recovery after races? Kind of back then. Um, well, it wasn't. As I said, it wasn't wholly um, professional. So I, I remember after I broke the world record, ringing up work, asking if I could just be late in. To, you know, two days later because things had changed. So it was. You, you, there was um, my, more than my fair share of injuries, but there was a guy called John Aldridge who was a consultant orthopedic surgeon in Coventry. And a guy called Norman Pilgrim, and there was uh, uh, Sheila Leddington Wright, and various other people around who would offer their support uh, uh, as best they could. But we didn't quite have the medical support that athletes have nowadays. So I probably did a lot of things wrong, and I didn't fully recover from a lot of injuries, and I trained through injuries. I'm 
fine about it. I've got two I had two bad knees. I've got two replacement knees, but I wouldn't I wouldn't swap a thing. The 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 having two replacement knees and um, you know and sort of walking like an old man is is a small price to pay for a, a life of fun. So um, uh, yeah, but we 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 just got on with it and enjoyed it and loved it and it was just great. So when retirement came, obviously then you you developed the what is to become CB Life now. Um, but the thing I was reading about earlier was around the British Athletic Federation and the work that you did with there. Kind of how was that coming from um, active sport to the behind the scenes? Well, I'd worked for the BBC uh, and we developed the project in Coventry. And then um, I, I um, uh, applied to become the chief exec of the governing body, the British Athletic Federation, because I felt that things could be done differently and could be a little bit more athlete centered and that you could build a team of people. So um, I, I applied for and, be, and was successful in becoming chief executive of the British Athletic Federation. And his slight problem was two weeks after I arrived, they went bankrupt, um, which was devastating at the time. Uh, and I had to deal with a huge amount of um, turmoil. Um, but again, a little bit like coming last in the Olympics uh, or the demise of the car industry in Coventry, it gives you a chance to do things differently. And sometimes out of out of catastrophe, you can be really quite creative because there's nowhere else to go. And so we, for a year, we spent time rebuilding the the governing body. Um, we worked with the administrators to wind down the old body, but we 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 were really lucky that. I'd been working for the BBC, and so the BBC came back into athletics. We, we, I worked with Alan Pascoe, who was a fantastic marketeer, and we got some great sponsors in that, that, that period. Um, there was a, 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 a woman called Alison O'Neill, who was, a, who was a, um, a, a, a professional consultant, and her company um, sponsored her to work with us on, on, on re, redeveloping the organisation. So uh, essentially we created uh, the new governing body within a year, and the new governing body became really financially resilient, really strong. Um, I had ten great years. Um, being in a governing body is is quite political, um, but it, but it was a, it was a great experience. Um, did it for ten years, loved every minute of it. And then I, ha, when that finished, I, I created my own company with a, 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 a guy that I'd been working with at UK Athletics. We worked on the Olympic Games in London. We worked on on a project together called Join In, which was an Olympic legacy project. And in the background was all the stuff in Coventry happening, CV Life being created. So working with Paul Breed, who I don't know whether you know, but a guy I used to teach in New Zealand, who's probably one of the most incredible deliverers um, that you could ever come across. He, he, he's a, a tower of strength behind CV Life, which is Coventry Sports Foundation and Culture Coventry working together now. And um, uh, I'm I'm there as a volunteer, as the chair of, of CB Life, but in awe of the people who work there, and um, uh, it's good fun. So how how is the city looking now in terms of sports facilities? Obviously, the wave has just been built, but in terms of the wider work supporting our kind of local athletes, how's that currently looking? Um, the swimming club and the athletics club, particularly in terms of Olympic sport, uh, are not as strong as we used to be. But the swimming club have now got the new pool at Higgs. Um, the, 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 the company at Ivor Harriers have always had a wealth of talent. We've got a great facility at the University of Warwick. And, you know, I hope that talent emerges from that. But when we, when we pick up a medal in judo, as we did at the Olympic Games, you realise that, that, that there's lots of sports in this city that are really, really strong. Um, I think Coventry is in a great place. I think the, the city of culture is so unfortunate about COVID. 
Um, but the city of culture is trying to be as impactful as it possibly can against the backdrop of COVID. I think that's great. I think we're dead lucky that the city council have, have supported sport and physical activity and leisure so well. You know that, that we wouldn't wouldn't have been able to build the wave or the 50 meter pool at Higgs without the council's support. And hopefully, you know, they see a return in terms of what it does for people in this city. And um, you know, we've got a lot to be proud of now. We've got a lot to look forward to in the future. And, and we need that spirit of, you know, the thing that created Coventry invention and and um, uh, 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 and that that energy, um, that energy to do things differently, to be creative, to be determined. And as long as that's there, but there's also going to be a post-pandemic period of where a lot of communities, a lot of individuals, not just older people, will feel pretty isolated. So I think that the way in which people from this city um, support each other, I think that whole notion of being kind mm-hmm. is not a bad quality, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it's lacking. But uh, again, I think you know you see it in volunteers and incredible work that's done in communities that the kindness of people in Coventry will help rebuild the city post-COVID. I imagine during COVID in particular, there might have been a lot more people that started running as gyms closed or perhaps for the first time. Um, do, do, I think you're still heavily involved in parkrun or you still do parkrun. Um, hopefully they're seeing more people than ever. Parkrun's amazing. Uh, I, 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 um, I, I chair the UK board of parkrun and the guy that created parkrun, a guy called Paul Sinton Hewitt's a genius because it's free and it's across the world. But you know, Coventry have now got the, the well-established Saturday 5K but the more recently established junior 5k, junior 2k on a Sunday morning at nine o'clock, and um, Parkrun's brilliant. And and the wonderful thing about Parkrun is one of the things that it really celebrates is the average time is getting slower every year, which means that it's appealing to people who don't consider themselves to be runners. You can walk a Parkrun yeah. and it's fine. And it, it's great for me because you know when I started at Woodlands when I was 11, running running was the thing that people tried their best to get out of. Now, running, walking, swimming, cycling are so popular. And as you said, you know, one of the ironies of, of the COVID period is so many people have discovered walking and I hope they, they carry it, that on. And if walking becomes running, uh, becomes cycling, people swimming, it's great. I think that's the whole thing. Uh, it's somebody that I know, I'm sure you do know, uh, Stuart Lanal. I think he came last in, in, the, in one of the more recent park runs. But I think it was so many people were proud because he did it and he tried and he, anything. I think everyone literally has to take that first step in with running. Yeah, you're right. Parkrun doesn't have a winner or a, or a last place. They, the, 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 the best that the person who, the winner in inverted commas can call themselves is the first finisher. Mm-hmm. And then there's a thing called a tail walker. So the per, you know, there's always somebody with that. And yeah, absolutely. What, you know, I'm so slow now. My, my time for 5K is more than twice it was when I, when I was at my best. And I, I can barely keep up with, with the family. Linda, my wife, will be patient enough to run at my pace, um, but my grandchildren just leave me, leave me for dead. Uh, and I love it, and it doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter. Just get round. And part run is is a social kind of interaction. It's a community. It's people getting together. The running bit is just a small part of it. I think that's a nice thing for us to kind of finish on. If people want to take those first steps into running parkrun, would definitely be that first thing to, to start, which takes place on Saturday at the War Memorial Park. Uh, would you know the time? It starts at nine o'clock, but there's a thing before parkrun, um, couch to 5K, which is how you can just go from walking, jogging a bit, what a build up to a 5K. But nine o'clock on a Saturday morning uh, at the Memorial Park is the 5K, and then nine o'clock on a Sunday morning is the 2K for under 14s. 
Couch 5K, even myself as a, a fit, healthy person, I couldn't run 5K. I played football for many years and just couldn't do 5K. And I ended up doing Couch 5K and ended up doing the, the full program to do it. And that was the first time I was ever able to do it. So definitely the combination of Couch 5K and Parkrun, I think would definitely be something. It's that community work that we talk about, the, the people working together, celebrating the city, fresh air. Um, yeah, great place to end up. I really appreciate your time, Dave. I think I've really enjoyed that. And I'm sure everyone at home will too. It's a pleasure, Aaron. Thanks very much. Enjoyed the chat. A massive thanks to David for his time in meeting me and to talk through his career. Uh, How cool is it that we've had an Olympian on the podcast? We end the episode, as always, with a song from a Coventry artist. And this week, we've got a great song from Ancient Cracked Voice. And the song is called William F. Cody and the Fosal Blues. And the idea behind the song was the group's fascination with the story behind Buffalo Bill and his touring Wild West show, which came to Coventry in the early 1900s. Uh, I think it's a great track. I've listened to it loads myself. Thank you, as always, for listening. I do appreciate it. And I'll speak to you soon. Such a sacred cow